When looking for the king of podcasts, you're at the wrong channel. Well, excuse me! Looking for good ideas for life? You're far from good hands. Hey, bud, what's your problem? If you think the listener is always right, you're far from the right place. Out of order! Even in the future, nothing works! Hosted by a Northeasterner by birth, but a rebel by choice. Are you threatening me? If you want a host that floats between love and madness, and we know the night is always gonna be here anyway. Thinking of you's working up my appetite, looking forward to a little afternoon delight. Then play on and listen to Crazy Train Radio. All right, guys, uh, listen to the blues riff and B. Watch me for the changes and try and keep up, okay? Warning, creators of this game do understand the subject matter may be offensive to some, but they do honor the families and people that have been affected by these real-life tragedies that these individuals have caused. Wanna play a game? Oh yeah! Lover of true crime? Yes, yes, yes. Well, we got an interesting game for you to check out. Wow. With the mashup of influences such as horror movies, collecting cards, and RPGs. What? Led to giving birth to an incredible creation of this game. Killers, the card game. You are all my children now. This game is a collectible trading card game featuring some of the most infamous killers with tidbits of trivia on the back of each card to help you learn some insight to each criminal. Who the hell are you? Let's not forget, during the game, cops will be chasing you and these criminals. I'm a cop, you idiot! However, check out their website listed through all social media today, which can be found under Killers, the card game. Am I on the internet? I want to play a game. Hi, it's Joe Blanton, former MLB pitcher, current wine owner. You're listening to Crazy Train Radio. your least favorite host in the podcast world, Croc, Jonathan Steele. Boy, do we have a good one for you today. Well, ladies and germs, boys and girls, this next guest is certainly living the American dream and has lived the American dream. 
Not only has he been a professional baseball player, but now he has his own winery. We'll get into everything. Joe Blanton, how the hell are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Oh, I can't complain. Nobody listens when you bitch. But, <laughs> you know, I, I tongue-in-cheek say about the American dream, but, you know, it's... Did you ever think a kid from Kentucky would not only play pro ball, but now doing what you're doing with uh, Selena Rines? Sailor Wines, yeah. No, yeah. I, I, no, absolutely not. I mean, you grow up like everybody else, you know, every, everybody that plays in the big leagues does, you know, for the most part, uh, small, there's small towns, big cities, you name it. Uh, there is no one path, but it's a path that for me, I was fortunate to, to keep on that path kept going and going till I eventually got to the big leagues. Um, you just kind of take it one step at a time. I mean, I know that's very cliche, right? One step at a time, yeah. but literally, you, uh, you know, I guess, and, uh, you know, I have three younger kids now that they're not, you know, the oldest one just got in high school, but you start thinking back, well, do they want to go to that level and start looking at the information now is so much different trying to think about that versus us. We just played to play. And if you got to go to high school and play, you got to go to high school and play. If you got to go to college, you got to go to college. There was no like, I guess, real thinking about your future and so much information like there is today. So it's definitely uh, that path back then was way different than it is now. And, you know, being like you said, the information's there, but it's at the fingertips of our kids and all that stuff at oh, this point with the cell yes. phones. But there's so much information at their fingertips. It's unbelievable. <laughs> how, how scary is that for you as a dad, you know, having three kids with uh, access to the Internet and where you and me are close, kind of close in age, but it's like we were on the first full generation of the Internet per se. Yeah, it's it is. Uh, it's one of those that's one of the as the you know as my kids start getting older the one of the tougher jobs as a parent is being able to control that and you know kind of hold the innocence if you will without let like having them be behind if everybody else is doing it if you will um <laughs> but as far as like information goes i mean i think i had this conversation with somebody a couple weeks ago think about when we were kids and you wanted to know uh what a star really was or I don't know, just make up any information you asked your parents and it was either they told you what, what they knew, or it was, it was, I don't know, or maybe something was made up, you know, where <laughs> now it's you literally just, you, you grab your phone, you type it in and go, okay, here's the exact information. So there's obviously there's good and bads to all of it. There's just so much information out there these days. And, uh, you know, it just depends on with which path you take it. It's crazy. Absolutely. So, obviously, before we get into the baseball and all that fun stuff, what led you to getting into the wine business? To alcohol, the cause of and solution to all of life's problems. Good question. Actually, baseball led me into wine business. Uh, funny enough, uh, I, obviously, the path it took. Um, you know, growing up in Kentucky, for one, I grew up in a dry county. So 
uh, you know, no liquor stores, no sales at grocery stores, anything like that. Um, they talked the bar, the whole fucking bar. So obviously where I grew up to where I am now is a very, very different path. Um, although both grew up small town farming community to this small town farming community, just a little bit different type. Go from soybeans, corn and tobacco to basically it's grapes, which turn into wine, but, uh, mm-hmm. you know, wine everywhere. But uh, back to your question, it was baseball. Um, as started progressing, uh, got through the minor leagues, came up with the A's. Um, for one, it's an Oakland hour half here from Napa. Um, I guess will will be was in Oakland. Um, traveling around with the guys, you know the guys. You know we're we're, we're when you're on the team, a team, you're a close knit family. We're together almost every day for nine months out of the year, and you're traveling. Guys are going out to eat. Guys are going to go to steakhouses. Some of the you know usually older guys are the ones that are taking us. The the rookies, the younger guys, uh, the veterans are you know picking the restaurants and saying you know come along and going to steakhouses and they're buying wine and they're like, you know, here, here's a glass of wine. You're like, I don't, I don't drink wine. I'm on the, I'm on the Coors Light diet or whatever it is. And they're like, no, yeah. you know, we're in a restaurant, you know, this is, you know, we're, we're at a, we're at a nice place, you know, have a glass of wine. So that, that starts happening. And then as you know, about half a year goes by, um, we have an off day, uh, a rare, rare off day that happens in the big leagues where you actually have an off day at home, usually off days that you see, you know, roughly, I think they get a few more now, was 162 games, 180 days. Most of those, depending on where you're at, if not all of them, are travel days. So you're flying on your actual off day. We had one where we didn't. Uh, so me, uh, a couple other other younger guys decided, hey, let's get a car. Let's head up to Napa. It's, a, it's an hour and a half away. It's an easy day trip. Let's go do something. Uh, you know, we went to a couple different uh, wineries, and I just remember, you know, Actually being, and I didn't have the love for wine then when I came, it was more just like, it was like, okay, it's a, it's a learning thing. You know, we all learn as life goes on and, you know, being at these wineries and, you know, tasting, you know, wine and barrel, uh, sitting there and having a glass of wine, overlooking the vineyard that it came out of, um, also learning the different varieties and just the different nuances in it. It just, it just, it's just something sparked in doing it and i was like wow this is really interesting and then i started coming back more and more and more to where napa became uh an annual place um that i would come every november so after every the end of every season uh in november we can't do october because we got to plan for the world series you know you're that thought's always in your head when you're making plans um and so that goes along and it became my place to kind of get away from the season. It was that last, uh, last vacation before training starts, before the throwing starts ramping up, getting ready for the next season. Um, so just really kind of, just kind of fell in love with it there. Um, and that translates into that kind of passion and love for wine that I developed. So then when we start flying on planes and I became the veteran guy, uh, I would, you know, we're fortunate we fly private with some of the crazy hours we're flying. And, you know, we carry a large squad of, you know, trainers and reporters and coaches and players fill up almost the whole plane. We're able to bring our own own drink if we prefer. And so I would usually bring uh, 
a bag of, you know, a roller bag of, of some wine and start sharing it with a couple guys. And that would grow into almost like wine groups we'd have on the plains where we start drinking wine, talking about wine, doing tasting notes, uh, which that really, you know, that kind of progressed into, you know, I really enjoy this. Maybe this could be some kind of a next step, uh, you know, when I'm done playing. Um, so that, so that's how baseball kind of led me into wine a little bit. And obviously I've heard, cause we know everything online is true. Am I on the internet? Yes. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, that you started taking college classes on winemaking and you obviously oversee the operation, but you let the professionals be the professionals, if that makes uh, sense. A hundred percent true. Yeah. So when I was, um, so the more I get into it and I started um, thinking, well, is this something I want to do? I want to say it was like around 2011 or so um, was when I really started kind of diving into it. 2011, 12. Um, and actually about then I didn't buy a vineyard till 2014, uh, uh, January of 14, actually very starting the year. And I had, so I'd been looking for two years and during those two years, I just started taking like online classes, um, that are available to anybody online that's interested. Like UC Davis is a good one. They do online classes and you, you know, uh, they have all kinds of different levels. And I was, you know, I started reading books and, uh, you know, when we would travel, we have the plane time or the downtime in a hotel. So I started, you know, kind of diving into all this and then uh, just just trying to grow my knowledge somewhat and then bought the vineyard, um, was still playing. So I played until 17. So I had the vineyard three years. But I also look at it as what I wanted to do with wine was make a very high end wine, something that I personally enjoyed, something that I'm proud of, that I'm proud of having my name on I can stand behind and for me to do that with uh, still playing for one unable to be here to to make it and also I don't have that skill set as you know especially then and not now even though I know more than now to to make that type of wine so uh I looked into you know what winemakers do I like what do I enjoy how you know, they make their wine and also that kind of personal relationship developing with them and, you know, found one that kind of fits all of that. Um, and that's I, I, I know this one's out there because I've said it that, you know, when I got him, I'm not expecting me him to come to me and say, oh, hey, you know, why don't you try throwing your curveball different? It's not really working lately, you know, kind of gave him the reins to run because I trust in what he does. And I almost tie that back into baseball as well when I look at it. And say, you know, what does a GM do? You know, you know, they, they do have their hands on it a little bit as far as if they, you know, hire, let's say I compare him to a Cy Young pitcher. They're kind of going to sign them and give them, let them do what they do because that's what they're good at. So that's kind of the almost way I look at it as the, as the GM of the operation. Well, what, and I'm not much of a wine person. I'm a uh, whiskey guy and beer and you hear different things about wine, but what would you say your wine of choice is? Because I hear that obviously people try to tie it in with, say, what you're mentioning or what you're eating if you're out to dinner or mm -hmm. you're just maybe you're watching a movie at home or, you know, I mean, depend, situation to situation. So what do you actually prefer 
if you're going to have a glass. So with exactly what you just said, every situation calls for a different, something different and not even just wine. I mean, there's times where, you know, uh, it's Christmas time and, you know, the, you know, this is popping up because it was just here and, you know, the trees lit and, you know, I'm watching TV and I'm like, Hey, you know what? I'd rather have a glass of bourbon right now. You know, it's not, it's not like I drink wine all the time. I, you know, have my share of course. Um, but even wine wise, it's, so I make Cabernet and a hundred percent Cabernet. And that's, if you ask me if I could only pick one wine the rest of my life, that's what I would pick. Um, but also there's different situations. If it's a hundred degrees outside and you know, it's, it's somebody wants some wine, it's probably going to be a white wine of some kind, or, you know, depending on the food that's coming out, you know, it might be tried to pair then. So it really goes depend, but at the end of the day, you know, I make Cabernet and Cabernet is the, it's kind of king in Napa. So at the end of the day, if I had to pick, that would be it. Well, I'll have a link to the winery and all that fun stuff on outlets of this, but baseball. So obviously you mentioned you were with Oakland and I know you were drafted first round, 24th overall. And it was around the same time that Michael Lewis's Moneyball was coming out. Mm -hmm. Did they talk to you much as far as when he was following that draft? Actually, yeah. So that was uh, that's uh, interesting. So the book, so uh, so I, my draft class was, I guess, known as the Moneyball draft class, um, where you know the Moneyball, the movie, obviously Brad Brad Pitt, you know, portrays Billy Bean and and so forth. Um, the movie is pretty much just about the big league club, but the book is actually kind of a two parted uh, book where it, it talks about the big league club and the draft. Um, so for the book wise, there wasn't much talk to us, um, as far as, as far as that goes, um, because it was more of the draft process instead of what the, the player, if that makes sense. Um, (laughs) but he definitely was around. I don't know. I know that he, he did come around for a bit and I know there was a couple times where I think he was thinking of a follow-up. Um, I don't think it ever happened, um, as far as the players, but I do know that his wife, Tabitha Lewis, formerly Tabitha Soren, she actually did a few things of her own about the draft class. So, so both of them would, uh, would come around on occasion. Um, she actually just came out with one. When did she come out with it? Uh, a couple years ago. Um, I don't know the exact date. Uh, I think the name of it's fantasy life or something so her idea was like a it was a i mean to talk about uh committed to something so she would come around kind of the first year of the draft at like 2000 uh i think it was the fall of 12 maybe we were all in instructs that year and she would um she would do like photo shoots with us uh, some a lot as a group uh some individual and then um we would see her at periods along the way, you know, here and there, but then 10 years down the road, she did a follow-up of the entire draft class, um, to where, uh, she photoed us again. And basically the, so this book, it's like a photo book slash, I guess, where are they now? Um, Mm -hmm. so it goes through and it tells, so 
you know, there's a couple of us that are still playing. Um, so it kind of has like what you look like as a rookie versus now, like the transformation of the body of, you know, athlete from rookie to 10 years down the road. And also it plays into, you know, what, what happens to everybody else, you know, people kind of forget that, especially in baseball. Right. Um, there's, yeah. I don't know how many rounds there are now. I think there were 60 down to 30. I don't know. I feel like they keep changing rules on me and I can't even keep up with it. <laughs> um, but so it had that in there where one of the guys that was one of our first runners was a coal miner. Uh, you know, another one is like sales insurance. Another one's a teacher. Uh, you know, it, so it, it has, you know, kind of what they're doing 10, 10 years down the road. Uh, so it's, uh, that was very interesting. So they, they did come around quite a bit and it was, it was actually a cool project to see, you know, kind of the progression of, of guys 10 years down the road through this money ball draft. Yeah, I'll have to. I don't, I'm not sure if you're familiar with her or have had any contact with her, but I have a relationship with a uh, Gene Fruth, who's a world-known baseball photographer, and you know she has a couple photo books out, which are pretty, very interesting. The one I'm actually seeing on my shelf now is called Grassroots. Like that book in particular has a uh, Hall of Famers tell their stories, and they go to these different towns. Like I remember the one chapter of say Hank Aaron from Mobile, Alabama. He did like mm-hmm. a passage and, you know, you know, using the photos and just having paragraphs from different guys was pretty cool. So, yes. Yeah. That's I always, know. that's always interesting. Cause you know, we see sports, um, you know, I think everybody does it at any sport. You kind of, once you're gone, you're gone. If that makes sense, you know, like there is no, you know, what are they doing now? Which is, which I, you know, sometimes can be very interesting the life that guys take on after because at the entirety of it sports is you know whether it's baseball or uh basketball football whatever it is is it's such a huge part of you uh because it's kind of what i guess what people you know maybe know more know you for you know no matter what your level is right if you're from a small mm-hmm. town you're good in high school and that's all you play people remember you as being you know, the state game in high school, and that may be all you did, but that's, you know, it's such a huge part, but it's such a short time in your life. So it is interesting to see uh, that what people do kind of after that. Well, you mentioned how much time you guys spend together, and people don't think about it because you travel together, you get hotels together, you mm-hmm. eat together, just everything that goes with it, you know, from February till at least the end of September and yeah. into October, like you mentioned, if you're playoffs, World Series and all that stuff. So obviously there's got to be, and I know so many older guys. I'm in the Philadelphia area, but it's like, I remember guys like a, say a Sparky Lyle, who was a Cy Young pitcher and all, would tell me some of the practical jokes they would do. You know, lighting shoelaces and yeah just mm-hmm. stuff you probably couldn't get away with now exactly yeah but were you guys practical jokers to relieve some of the monotony of what you were doing how did you guys or at least you handle the day-to-day grind of being a professional athlete yeah so that's um every kind of person every team has their own whatever it is. Right. And that, you know, kind of what you had mentioned, like the older guys, some things they would do, they were able to do it in the dugout at the games or, yep. you know, out in public or as when I came in the league, 
oh shit, I'm dating myself right now. Um, there wasn't camera phones yet. I don't and believe. Sparky, I'm sorry. Don't call me saying I was throwing you under the bus. I'm sorry, buddy. But go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So I don't think there was camera phones. Oh, four, oh, five was my first yeah. two years. Oh, six. So then they started coming around. So then, you know, you know, teams started having meetings in spring training. Like, hey, guys, you know, some of the things we've been doing, we can't, you know, we can't do anymore. People are taking. And then it turned into, hey, you guys got to completely cut everything out because they take a picture and it's available to everybody within 30 seconds. So a lot of the things you're mentioning, you know, the practical jokes and things like that start kind of, kind of going away. And then, you know, when they did happen, they were looked at as, you know, Oh, Oh, it's fun. And then, you know, obviously depending on which city you play in the seriousness of the games and what level you're trying to, you know, win a world series or the amount of money that's being paid, especially now, it's like, oh, you know, how can these guys joke around at their job? Which I think is ridiculous because we got to have fun, right? You're adults <laughs> playing a kid's game. You got to make it fun. I mean, yes, every guy out there does take it serious. But at the same time, you know, if you're not having fun at your job, then it makes it a lot more rough. Um, but, yeah, everybody has their own way. And, uh, you know, that changes for everybody and every team. Um, you know, definitely when I was with Philly, we had our – we had our jokesters, Brett Myers, um, mm -hmm. definitely was one of those that liked to have fun, you know, in the clubhouse, Ryan Matz and these guys were definitely kept a lot of things light, kept us laughing. Um, but that's all stuff like, you know, behind closed doors a little bit, you know, some of it's not, I think I just saw one pop up with Brett the other day. This is, I think the year before I got there where, uh, Cal Kendrick, he pulled the Pulled the joke on him about him getting traded the to Japan. the hot dog champion, Japan. I mean, yeah. that's just hilarious. Like, that's the kind of stuff he would do. And, you know, uh, to be able to come up, up with that, pull that whole thing off, the it, you know, it's hilarious. You know, in spring training, sometimes that's what it's that's what's needed. You know, you're kind of you're kind of back out there and, you know, you're jumping back in the grind. And sometimes even that was spring training, but sometimes even in season, that's what you need. You're on a five game skid where it's hard now because people are like, Oh, you're losing five games. How come you're joking around? And it's like, sometimes that's what it needs. You know, that's what people don't understand. Everything's under such a microscope these days. Um, but, and then my, you know, mine progressed into, you know, as I got older, like I said, wine was my getaway. It was, you know, doing tastings on a plane and then, you know, maybe taking a class to where those couple hours uh, in a hotel before I head to the field was my kind of like, I didn't have to think about whatever it was that day as I was able to, to get away for a little bit. And at the time you were traded to Philly from Oakland, it was five and 12 record, almost a mm -hmm. five ERA, but you were known as a workhorse in innings eater. So coming from a town like Oakland and yeah, there's that whole thing with the move and all you referenced earlier. But what was it like coming to Philadelphia and that playoff team at that point, which ended up you guys went on to win the World Series in 08? Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously that worked out really well for me. Um, that was that was a great trade. But um, in all honesty, like starting in Oakland wasn't, you know, I – it worked out well for me personally and for a lot of guys at that time. Oakland is an organization that, uh, I mean, it's not like I'm throwing a shocker out there. They're known to 
trade a lot of guys off. Guys move pretty quick through the system. You know, they come up, they don't sign guys to deals. So um, it's not a huge market. So it was almost like this, it teaches you to become a big leaguer without getting thrown into, let's obviously you, the two organizations you mentioned, Oakland and Philly, very different markets. Um, crowd differences, uh, expectations, very, very different, right? But they're both playing the same game. So one, you got this big media present, the other is not as much. One expected to win a World Series. So the pressure to succeed right away in Philly is great, way, way greater than it is in Oakland, where you kind of come up and you're allowed to kind of get your feet wet, kind of get it, get settled a little bit. If you don't start out that great. I remember I started off my rookie year. I think it was like, Oh, and five was like a six or something. You started that with the Yankees, the Phillies, the Red Sox, you're out, you're back down, like, see you later. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, I actually got a chance to stay up and um, you know, I started that year off really well. I had like a one something through a month and then completely went to shit after that. And then, but, was able to completely turn around, finish the year with like a three and a half, going 12 and 12 after starting like 0 and 5 or 0 and 6, uh, whatever it was. So, and then that gave me that confidence to keep going. And with that being traded over to Philly, I had that confidence of like, okay, I'm a big leaguer. I know how to handle everything. Um, Really allowed me to, even though, like you just said, I was kind of struggling over in Oakland at the time. It, it was kind of that start of a tough period. When I first came up, we actually had some pretty decent teams, 05, 06. Uh, you know, 06, we beat Minnesota in the first round of the playoffs, go on. Uh, you know, we had big-name players. Um, and then everything kind of started getting, like, sold off, like sometimes they do. Um, but, you know, getting traded to Philly, all the guys were awesome. And everybody knew they wanted to win. There was that common goal. So that, that was almost like a breath of fresh air going somewhere to where even though there was that pressure to win, I was fine with it. It was great. You know, I, that's what I wanted. You know, that's what every big leaguer wants is to win a World Series. So getting thrown in that situation was awesome. And then, you know, obviously the team, uh, the way we jailed and bonded was just made it even easier. How, how long do you think it took you to adjust being to, you know, because playing the game is one thing. Getting adjusted to being in a new locker room with a bunch of new guys you don't know and coaching staff and just, you know, certain things you weren't familiar with. But obviously, you jump, you're you jumping uh, head on there, if that makes sense. Yeah. So that's, I think, what sometimes a lot of people don't understand. And, you know, there is no right way to approach it, wrong way to approach it. And some guys thrive on a, after a trade because it's uh, it's a you know kind of like i said like a a new breath of air and some guys might struggle a little and it's not necessarily because uh, they can't handle it it just just sometimes happens but even things people don't think about and uh i forget who told me this um i want to say it was rick monday he was announcing with la when i got traded from there and we were talking how I handled the trade when I went got traded from Philly to L.A. Um, and we started talking about just exactly what you're talking about, how the locker room is different. You know, you go from Oakland, which not very updated locker room, to Philly, brand new park. Um, all the amenities, you know, people, there's things people don't even understand that, that kind of sometimes don't make sense. Like, obviously, you're going to a new city. You're first off living in out of a hotel 
mm-hmm. trying to trying to your first like you know obviously you're if it's on the road or home doesn't matter when you go there you're in a hotel you're trying to figure out a new place to live every day you're headed to the park for 12 hours um if you have a family or not that makes life more different now they're somewhere else you're here if they were with you with not and then even like tiny little things like i went from oakland with white cleats to philly with red and they got traded there dodgers are blue it kind of, everything kind of looks weird for a minute right you're you know you might have a pair of cleats that you've broke in that are comfortable or whatever whatever it may be now it's completely new you know other than the clubhouse but when i go to that all of those things like you know they don't like affect your performance but they are things that are different right a new path to the field every day um your your car's back in oakland you're you know, getting, you know, you have nothing with you but a suitcase you're living out of for a month trying to get your stuff stuff out. But in that, uh, for me, the actual locker room of the Phillies was such a good locker room that it made the transition very easy. Um, and I got traded over and I don't, I'll, right off the top of my head, I don't think I had played with anybody that was on that team. Um, I was a little bit younger, I think fourth year. As you get older, that that happens. It's more rare that you haven't played with anybody. Um, but as I progressed and got traded, usually there was at least one or two guys I had played with before. So you have a little bit of a common bond, but there was nobody. But I remember, for me, uh, the specific moment of uh, we, I got traded over All-Star break. I was in my home in Nashville at the time. And they were opening up in uh, Florida uh, against the Marlins. And I happened to fly in. I missed the first game uh, because of the trade when I was flying in. And when I landed and I go to the hotel, the team had just got back from the first game. Like I said, I missed the first one. And so they, they were all coming in off the bus. And it, it was at least half of them, if not more came up to me and you know said hello hey glad to have you and i didn't know any of them so that's really like uh you know talking about taking you in right there right that that makes a difference gives you that kind of comfort level out of the gate um but that that was a special group to where not every trade happens like that right on and obviously in that world series people remember i'm gonna play the audio clip from Game four, you hit a home run, bottom fifth, 2-1 pitch, 15th pitcher to hit a home run like that. I believe it was Ken Holtzman in 74 mm-hmm. to hit in game four as well. Yep. What was that Coincidentally, like Coincidentally, the A's, uh, with the A's. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's that like for you to hit? say I got a home run in a World Series? Uh, I mean, it's definitely um, – gosh, it's – it's a moment that like, it's, it's kind of so unexpected, right. Uh, we're like, Oh, if you win a game in the world series, it's like, Oh, I, I've been prepping for this ever since I became a pitcher. Right. Or mm-hmm. if like a hitter hits one, like, yeah, it's awesome. It's in the world series, but that's what you've been training to do. Right. To even if like, it's a moment that, you know, only a few people have done, but it's what you've been training to do. It's what you've, it's what you've been shooting for. Right. That, other than when you're when I was a kid and playing wiffle ball in the backyard or, you know, whatever it was, that had, that wasn't a moment that I was training for. So it was kind of like a I hate to say it, it was like I mean it, it is an accidental moment, you right? Uh like a kind of like a luck moment, if you will. I came from college. I didn't so I hit 
my last year of high school in 99, go to college. I didn't hit minor leagues. I didn't hit came up in the American league. There wasn't as much interleague then there was a little bit. So maybe had a handful of at bats in the, in the past from, you know, in the past eight years going up to that. So, uh, going over the national league now having to hit almost every game, you know, it was a new learning experience. You're going from, you know, small, trying to hit small town, Kentucky pitching to hitting big league pitching is a big jump and you hadn't touched a bat in eight years. So, but I think, you know, it's definitely a special moment for sure that, you know, it's out there. It's very cool to, you know, when you see it again and, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely a rememberable moment. The 2-1 is hit well in the left. How about Blanton going deep? to 1974 Kenny Holtzman the last pitcher to hit a home run Blanton is now the 15th Joe Blanton's first at bat as a Philly he had a hit and his last at bat as a Philly he's had a hit obviously and I don't want to keep you on the line for a super long time but obviously fast forward a few years you were the fifth starter for the 2011 team when you had mm-hmm. the four aces you know you had Oswald mm-hmm. and Holiday and Lee back and coming back and just mm-hmm. that it was funny because when I was refreshing my memory and I know I'll get emails and texts and all that hey but you're an Orioles fan which is true as a fan standpoint grew up with the Orioles love them Cal Ripken all that fun stuff but mm-hmm. when I was going back and reading everything that Media requests were so crazy. They ended up having the first press conference with all you guys mm-hmm. on Valentine's Day of all. How ironic. The love for you guys. But what was it like being with that many studs for pitching? But was it then during that press conference that there was a funny moment between you and a reporter who forgot you were with the OA team? It was. Uh, yeah. And I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, you know what? That was a, actually, a, I got two or three stories off of that. Um, Please. It was a great, great group to be a part of first off um, outside of how good those guys were on the field. Um, the quality of people that those, that that rotation was Unfor- rewind. Unfortunately, I wound up getting hurt. I, I wasn't, I didn't pitch for most of the year. Um, I had some elbow issues that I just never could overcome. Uh, so Vance Worley stepped in. He was unbelievable for the, for the whole year. Um, but starting off that group, um, here's a story. And I think I, I've told this one before somewhere or put it out there somewhere. Uh, and I think I did it when he got in the hall of fame. So Roy holiday, um, okay. we, uh, they, Sports Illustrated wanted to do 
So lucky enough, because of being that group, I did what every kid, you know, when we grew up and we're playing sports, what do we want to do? Be on the cover of Sports Illustrated, right? So luckily enough, with being a part of that group, was able to do that. Um, And I'm realist enough that I know it had nothing to do with me, right? Um, It's with those other four, but they come in. And they say, hey, we want to do, we want to put you guys on the cover. We want to put you four on the cover. Like you said, the four aces, you know, da-da-da. And Roy Halliday, I think that was his first year, I believe, with Philly. Yeah. Um, And he, you know, they approached it to us. And, you know, they told him, you know, they we want you four guys. Roy told him, he said no. And they're thinking, well, I guess he just doesn't want to do it. And he said, no, we're not a staff of four. We're a staff of five. He's the only way I'm doing is if the whole rotation does it. So that if that tells you something right there, and I've told that story for just that that's and the whole group was like that. And once he said it, the rest of three were like, oh, yeah, they weren't like, Roy, come on. Like, this is what they want to do. It's no big deal. You know, they were like, oh, yeah, 100 percent. We're a staff of five. He goes, he's going to make up you know, 20% of our starts this year, you know, he's as much a part. He's going to, if I throw 33 starts, he's going to throw 33 as well. He's as much a part of it as all of us. You know, we're, we're a team. This is not the way we do it. He made that, you know, kind of clear from the start. And that, that what was, was what was special about all those guys is, is that's the kind of people they were away from who they were on the field. So I thought that one was great. Um, and then with what the story you're talking about, so we start off and it's ugh, first couple of days of spring training. And honestly, it, they could have wanted the same thing, those four guys, but it wound up being all five of us. And retrospect, I complete. And even that day, I completely understand um, those four guys were all the attention and much, much warranted. Right. Cole's been a world. He's the youngest one, been a World Series MVP already inside Young Talks. Roy Oswalt for what he had done multiple times in the top five in Cy Young, just getting him over. Roy Halladay already won a Cy Young over in the American League, establishes one of the best pitchers. Cliff Lee, exactly the same. Cy Young winner coming back, accolades for these guys for days, multiple All-Stars, you name it. Um, So the interview goes on, and, you know, they're talking about the expectations now that this rotate winning a World Series, you know, which – you know, we come into Philly. That was the expectation when I got there. The whole time I was there, it was to win a World Series. It wasn't get to the playoffs. It wasn't winning the division. It was win the World Series. That was that was what we had planned every year. And uh, a reporter asked Cole, uh, "Hey, what's it like with you know being up here with the two Roys and Cliff and you know those two have won Cy Youngs and you know, but you're the youngest one up here and the only one that has won a World Series." And uh, Cole's getting ready to answer, and I kind of lean up, and I was like, "I'm up here too. I won one." And like, like I, I said it joking. I didn't say it like meaning to, to like call you him being out. a dick about it. Yeah, I was wasn't trying to be a dick about. it. I was trying to like joke around about it. Like, like I said, I understand where my place was in this group, right? We all do. Uh, and the guy was he was a super nice reporter, so it wasn't like he was he was a dick reporter that I was trying to call out. He apologized to me so many times. I was like, and I was like, look, I'm sorry. Maybe I shouldn't have said anything. I was like, I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I was like, I'm trying to make a joke of it that I know who these guys are, but we're here for the same goal. So 
yeah, that was a, that was kind of a funny moment, but, uh, the good news, I don't think he ever gave me a bad report after that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I'm sitting here. Uh, you saw the bookshelf before my video cut out, and, mm -hmm. but I'm looking at the Todd Zelenke book, uh, doc. And mm -hmm. yeah, it's a shame that he didn't get to live to see the or hall of fame and such. Yeah. Because, well, have you ever been up there to the hall of fame, but also what kind of guy was doc to deal with? Um, so I haven't been to the hall of fame. Um, oh my God. You got to go. Yeah, I know. Uh, my son is 11 now. He just turned 11 a couple months ago. So he's kind of at that age and he plays that it's kind of about that time to take a trip, but he's also, I know that Cooperstown has a big tournament every year. Uh, um, yep. Like not a little league tournament, but like other tournaments. So hopefully one I can get him with a team or start a team or whatever it is where we can eventually play in that. And then that's when I'll take him. That would be a awesome trip. But um, doc, what kind of guy was doc? So I think the story I told just a minute ago about, when they wanted to, you know, put us on Sports Illustrated and what he said, I think, I think I could stop there. And that tells what kind of person he was. Yeah. Um, but, you know, like a couple other stories, like behind the scenes type stories, and I'm sure this has been told. Um, I remember when he threw uh, the perfect game in Miami. Um, I actually rode with him in the cab that day. Um, so that's a funny one. You know, those moments when you're with somebody that does something special earlier um so i mm -hmm. ride with him in the cab that day and we're standing there and when doc pitched he pitched and i played with him and kershaw and there were both very similar on days they pitched uh funny enough two two of the greatest pitchers i've played with they're guys like you don't really talk to on the days they pitched and that doesn't make them bad people because every other day you could it's just the day they're just they zoned pitched, in they're zoned in and every guy was different like uh max scherzer's like that also but when I played with Cliff, um, and I could probably name a couple other like guys that won Cy Young, possible Hall of Fame, they would be talking to everybody like 30 minutes before their start, messing around, like staying loose. Everybody has their own way of getting in a zone, right? Some people like to keep themselves relaxed. Some people, you know, are that. So Doc was that. So I remember riding in a cab, 30-minute cab, and I think I just like scooted all the way against the door, like staring out the door like, oh, don't say anything. Like, I don't want to throw him off his zone today. And my locker was beside him in, in Philly. Like, our lockers were next to each other. And so I knew that's the way it was. And you, you respect it. You know, when guys get to that level, everybody respects that focus that they bring. And they kind of let them do their thing that day. Um, but we get to the field. Obviously, he goes out, throws the perfect game. Uh, you know, we come back in. You know, everybody's, you know, hugging, high-fiving the whole deal. Uh Sell, trying to celebrate and uh doc stops everybody from celebrating you know somebody stops the, some the celebration and kind of like you know speech 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 or something somebody maybe found a bottle of champagne like oh open it celebrate this and he goes um and doc goes well he goes i don't know if i should be the one speaking i think chooch carlos reese should be he goes this game was because of him he goes, he was awesome today. And, and like mentioned the defense, so, you know, I couldn't have done it. So like his first, the first things out of his mouth were, uh, were Ruiz and the team that, you know, he, he 
thanked all of them for being able to do it. Not, oh, you know what, guys, you know, I was on today in any of that. It was it was everybody else. So. Yeah, I think don't say two, who the guy was. Yeah, those are those are for me. Those are two stories of like the person Doc was, because I think you can look at his body of work and you can watch games. He threw throwing a no hitter in the playoffs, uh, you know, multiple Cy Youngs, you know, Hall of Fame, all that. And that that tells you what kind of player he was. Um, the, you know, and definitely I kind of went into it with the, the intensity level that he played with as well was definitely unmatched. Yeah. And I only met him one time, probably like six months before he passed as a fan. And he seemed like a very quiet guy. Nice, very, yeah. nice and cordial and all, but he was quiet. Yeah. Yeah. It's very quiet. Yeah, for sure. One of the more quiet, uh, quiet guys on the team for sure he was a very um and i think there's two ways a player can do it to be a leader if you will and him and chase were very similar as like a lead by example guys very quiet at the field they didn't say a whole lot to anybody if they said something you listen because they didn't talk much um where you're with other guys and it's like you know jimmy was more outspoken uh you know howie i mentioned brett earlier like guys like that are more uh, more kind of the outspoken people on a team um, where he, those guys kind of led by example. Absolutely. And to put a bow on this and make sure you guys check out the links for the winery and all that fun stuff. But when people talk about you, whether it's the playing career or however they bring your name up, how do you think you'll be remembered? Hmm. Good question. Never thought about that one before. Um, I think the most, I think a, I think it's kind of what you, the, what we talked about earlier, hitting the home run of world series. I think that's the first instant moment is that, because that was such a big moment, but that's like a moment, not a career, if you will. Uh, But I think that's the first thing people remember and think about. Uh, But, you know, if I could say, and I, um, I was like, I was traveling this year and I was lucky enough to uh, be considered actually with Frank Thomas, who I played with um, and Todd Walker and Todd Lilliquist, the SEC. So we all played in the SEC and they did a thing at the SEC tournament where they considered us um, SEC legends. And we all threw out a first pitch and kind of had a big thing. And um, when I was down there, my agent was there and I took my son with me and we were all sitting at a game talking and I think he said it best. He said it to my son, actually, um, that he said, if you're half as tough as your dad, you'll be just fine. And I said, for the, for me, that's what it was. I was able to, um, although I brought up where I may had some DL time, but you know, there's, I took pride in so many years, like not getting on the DL played my whole career without a surgery, uh, you know, playing through a lot of things that, you know, that hurt and didn't just go on the DL to go on the deal. Cause I didn't feel good or whatever, you know, like going out there. And also uh, for me, like the ability to, like I had to make adjustments in my career, you know, uh, switching to the bullpen for the last three or four years, longer than then wound up as, you know, kind of like a setup guy in LA, uh, you know, kind of doing what it takes to stick around. And, you know, people ask me, Oh, you know, what was your best pitch when, you know, and I'm like, I don't, I don't know. They were like, what do you mean? You don't know. I was like, I, you know, I came into the league as 
you know, I was 94, 95, 96, like four team. A's didn't want that. They wanted sinker change up. So I developed into that kind of guy. You know, I go to Philly, everybody's throwing a cutter. So I learned to throw a cutter. Um, after being four, four seam curveball heavy, I was cutter change up, you know, cold through a chat, but it, that was the big things in Philly. And then, you know, after you, after I left there, I was, I had to transfer the bullpen and slider became my best weapon. So I was able to kind of change and adjust to be able to, to stick around and, and, uh, be able to continue playing. I, I, if I had to pick, I, that's kind of what I would pick. And this just came up. As you were saying that, what is the mentality of you were a starter for so many years, but mm -hmm. then you made the switch to a reliever? Is there a different mentality for how you approach the game? There was. Um, and um, whereas a starter, it's like this big buildup for one day. And then it's like, and then it's like a reset. And you it's just this constant like, you're climbing this for this build. Everything is in preparation for this day, right? The day after you pitch is in preparation for the next day, the day before the, all the days in between, everything is in preparation for this big day. Um, where as a reliever, it's, it, you're funny. You're kind of like this forgotten person that sometimes they just throw in there. You feel like, cause you, you gotta be ready every day. It's like, Hey, well, I don't care you through yesterday or the day before you're out there, you're going to throw there is, you know, so there's, there's more of like a be ready to go every day. Um, the way you approach hitters for me was different. Um, you know, starters, there was kind of this little, especially then I don't think as much now, uh, holding something back for the second or third to through the lineup. So being able to have that starting career and going to the bullpen, uh, having multiple weapons to go to, and I didn't have to hold any of them back. It was like, oh, wait, this is nice. I can just go right after him. But then as it progressed, and I became like a setup guy, so that's where even in the bullpen it becomes different. Being a long guy versus a setup guy, you know, you're ready from the first to the fifth innings as like a long guy. After that goes by, well, that was when I was with the Royals, first to the fifth innings, you know, I was like on on mental standpoint, ready to go, and then – that fifth or sixth hits and it's kind of like you don't cash out because you could never know what happens but you kind of relax a little bit more we got a one to three run lead they're passing the ball off to greg holland wade davis kelvin herrera and i ain't touching the ball so you know they're the ones that are doing it versus transitioning to la i'm like seventh eighth inning guy that changes first couple innings i'm not so ready and they're i am and that other but also you're facing uh a team the first day you're winning by two runs, you pitch facing two, three, four. Well, you know what? If I'm facing um, Buster Posey, well, back then they were in division with the Dodgers, Buster Posey, uh, Paul Goldschmidt, these guys that are the three, four hitters, it's like, oh, I'm facing them with a three run lead with nobody on. Maybe I don't show them so many sliders today. Maybe I kind of stay a little bit fastball heavy. I can hold that in my back pocket. So if I face them the next two days, now I can bust it out because they get a hit, eh, not the end of the world. But if I face them tomorrow and I've got the tying run on second in the eighth inning and with one out and they're up, that's going to mean a lot more if they get a hit than today. So there's that, there's that kind of game within the game where you play yeah. stuff different. And you just stole the line. I was going to say, because I've been doing this since 2012 and 
early on, I got to talk to Jason Kendall, who was an awesome catcher. And Jason was my talk. catcher when I came up to the big league. Yeah, he was my he, he were, was my not my first catcher, but as a rookie, he was my catcher for probably because he played every day. Right. He played mm-hmm. as a catcher. He was playing one hundred and forty something games out of one hundred and sixty with backup catchers never touching the field. So he was catching all my start, starts. I learned so much from him uh, being a being a rookie pitcher and having him as a veteran catcher. And he uses that line, you know, the game within the game. And Jason is a guy, if you want to talk and learn the game, Jason is one of those guys who will teach you so much and you don't even realize it. A hundred percent. Yeah. He's one of my favorite teammates. And actually he's in the, I, I'm a, I don't know if he still is in the front office of Kansas city. Um, so when I got traded over to Kansas city, I he's one of the first guys I saw and he was like, I told him to bring you over. Because uh, we, we're of the kind of that same cut from the same cloth, same mindset, more yeah. quiet guys, like tough guys. Like, and he was like, when the, he goes, they asked me because I played. And he goes, he goes, I don't care what's going on. He's going to. And that that goes back to what you asked, what people. That's what I wanted my teammates to think. He goes, I don't care what's going on. He's going to step up and give it his best every day. And he goes, that's what he goes. That's how I sold you to them. And I was like, appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. <laughs> Yeah. Jason's a good dude. I lo- yeah. enjoy to communicate with him. He's great. Yeah. But one of the Joe ultimate Blanton, game, one of the ultimate gamers. Oh, absolutely. And if you get a chance to read his book, it's awesome. But oh, I didn't even know he had one. Yes, I, I'll send you a link for it. Yeah. I will get that over to you. But Joe Blanton, thank you so much for the time. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. Hey there, Friday fans. We know how much you enjoy the movies. Enjoy grabbing your Friday merchandise and interacting with the Friday family, whether it be at conventions or during our particular watch-alongs. Well, when you're looking to get yourself masks, why not check out our friends over at Camp Blood Customs out of New York State and order your specific custom mask from any other films. All orders are made specifically. Your needs and wants are. Make sure you find Camp Blood Customs on Facebook, Instagram, and all over social media and order yours today. Hi, this is Jamie Moyer, and you're listening to Crazy Train Radio.